Hello, Claremont. Welcome to another episode of Claremont Speaks. I'm Russ Binder, your host as always. And for this episode, I have a repeat offender, one of my favorite early guests, Eric Nelson. He is the True Mark Holmes Vice President of Community Development. He was on sometime during the first season to talk about the Laporta housing project. Since then, quite a bit has happened. And so for this episode, we're going to do three things. Talk about what's happened since, set the record straight for what's happening now, and then give an idea of what's to come. Eric, welcome back to Claremont Speaks. Thank you, Russ. It's great to be back. Really appreciate having this opportunity. And for anybody that didn't get the opportunity to listen to the first podcast, the end result of that is we got a lot of good feedback from the community and we're back again for the same reasons, just to communicate our plan and hopefully get more engagement and share even more about what we're up to. To me, one of the best things you did on the previous podcast was that you forwarded it to me a note, I think it was from your boss, that he liked it. Yeah, my boss, I mean, it was the first podcast we'd ever done. This is you know a unique situation where you, you have a community-based podcast where you talk about real issues in your community. And frankly, like I've told you in the past, I wish every community had a venue like this for us to get out and share with the community what we're doing and encourage them to get in touch with us. And I'm sure at some point I'll be able to give out my phone number, which we'll do, as well as other places they can go get more information. But I would encourage everybody to go back to that first episode. If they have time, listen to that. And then we'll be talking about what's changed as a result of not only that podcast, but meetings that occurred following that podcast with the planning commission, as well as the sports committee. Very cool. All right, so Eric, let's do this uh, just for one minute. As I said, you're the Vice President Community Development for Truemark Homes. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, what got you here, and what you do. Sure. As you said, I work for Truemark Homes. I've been with Truemark for close to 10 years. We celebrated our 30-year anniversary a few years back. It's a family-run company. I work side-by-side with the founding owners. You know, our company is focused on building homes and communities throughout the state, as well as in Colorado. Me personally, I've been a planner slash community development and housing advocate for close to 30 years. But most of my housing experience is with Truemark Homes. My previous company, we did some housing projects. But over the last almost 10 years, I've been heavily focused in just housing, as well as with an organization called the Building Industry Association. I served as the president last year, so I'm currently serving as the previous vice president. And I'm also a planning commissioner of my own community. So I believe in this idea of outreach, community consensus, working closely with other community because they're our partners and they're, you know, somewhere where we want to do business. And it's critical that as we try to do business in any one city, that we hear from all the stakeholders. And again, that's part of why we're here today. Well, one of the things I liked about our conversation before, and that came after you had already had a couple meetings, Zoom meetings with- uh, Brad Johnson. Brad Johnson. Yeah, we, at that point, and I bear with me here because of my memory, as I age gets a little bit harder to crack open. But by the time we got in front of you and, and had the conversation, we had already had several community meetings We had at least one, if not two meetings with the sports committee. And we were really at that point seeking feedback on a plan that was bigger than the one that we're proposing now had more units and had a lot of people that were concerned about some of the proposals. And we were looking for more input from the community. And we indeed received that as a result of those conversations. And the project ultimately changed as a result of, I think it was in April of 2021, was the last big update to the community. And based on that feedback, we submitted a significant change to the plan. 
which is the 56 unit plan that's currently in front of the city and being studied in their environmental review as we speak. Well, then let's talk about this. You came to the podcast because I thought it was interesting enough and important enough that you should have an expanded way to, a no time limit way to talk about that. So let's talk about the project. What has evolved since then and where are we at today? Because it says in the Courier that the future of Laporta is really uncertain that you've had a builder's remedy application. But what got us from, let's say, the time of the last podcast to here, what's happened, and what would you like people to know most about what the plan du jour is? Absolutely. So our 56-unit plan, which we like to refer to as the collaborative plan, is a plan that, in the face of the uncertainty that you mentioned, does a couple of things. A, it protects the local priorities and it provides some significant community benefits. You know, you refer to it as the builder's remedy. I'd like to call that our supplemental application. It's one that hopefully we never have to engage in. It's really what I would refer to as a bookmark, but even that project um, as proposed does the exact same thing. It protects the local priorities, provides the most benefit to the community, and is really intended to ensure that what gets built here is a low density housing project. You know, we spoke in April of 2021. That was after a year and a half of working with the neighbors. We're now at, you know, about three years of receiving input and feedback. And some of the primary things we heard from the community is they want to see something done here, but they want to see something that's low density. What we didn't hear is a significant opposition to housing. But what we did hear is that they want that housing to be as consistent as possible with the low density neighborhood that it's in. So both of our projects do that. However, our preference is the 56 unit project. And again, we call that our collaborative plan. And that is in front of the city now. It does exactly what we think the community in its totality really asked for. And that's housing at a scale and an intensity that's appropriate and consistent with the community that it's in. Now, if somebody wanted to press pause, in a second and go look at that. Is there online a set of pictures or a proposal or something like that that they could go look in while we talk? There sure is. Where is that? So they could go to LaPuertaClaremont.com and that is our website. All one word? It's all one word. LaPuertaClaremont.com. Correct. LaPuertaClaremont, all one word. That is a project website that gives a lot more detail into what we're doing. And I'll just offer up now, if anybody wants to have a conversation with us, they can reach me on my cell phone at any time at 949-510-2070. I would encourage anybody listening to get on our website. There's an opportunity for them to sign up for our newsletter, which will keep them in the loop as things move forward. My primary goal as a community development professional and a planner is to have community engagement. And the only way we can do that in the world we live in today is through the internet, through conversations like this, as well as direct conversations with community members who want to dive into the details, which we're more than happy to do, or I'm more than happy to do, because I think in the details is where people get to learn all of the important things about what this project is proposing to do. Very cool. I don't know if you want to have a open forum or a live meeting. They've done this for other things where they have a meeting at the Hughes Center or something like that. We expect to have multiple outreach meetings as we move forward. The city's obviously going to have several meetings as the environmental impact report gets released for the community's input. Um, we'll be in front of the planning commission and the city council, as well as you know we've been speaking to groups within town whether it's the chamber or I think you're involved in Active Claremont, where we'd That's love correct. to come out to any of the groups that are in town that want to hear more about the project, where we can do a, more of a presentation on what we're proposing. 
and get more feedback from those um, important groups that are involved and engaged in the community issues that um, are occurring throughout town. Well, I think I can speak for Active Claremont that we would absolutely like to have you come out as a guest speaker here in the next couple months would be great. Perfect. We'd love to do it. We're going to have Catherine Barger come talk, but I think after that we have an opening. So let's think about it. Awesome. We'll figure out when that works and I'd love to be there to do that with you guys. Perfect. So now you've had a couple of different configurations for the Laporta site. Plus there's also been maybe yes, maybe no, maybe here, maybe there for improving some of the sports venues around town. How has that either changed or not? Yeah, so it has changed. And well, if I go back to the original commitment that we made to the community in our first outreach meeting was that we were there to listen. Um, We certainly had an idea and a plan that we wanted to present, but that wasn't our final plan. And we are now on the third revision to that plan. And this, the latest plan is a 56 unit plan that has removed all of the components of the park improvements as a fundamental response to what we heard from the community. So no Kahila? No, we're not doing any work in Cahuilla or in La, or within La Puerta in the sports park. Again, that was really a result of all these outreach meetings and the feedback that we received from the residents, from the city, from the um, school district community groups, and from the sports leaders. I think there were some that really would have liked to see some of that work done, but um, we listened to the totality of those discussions and we ended up with a, an updated plan that reduced the unit count by nine or 10 units. It'd be nine, I think. So our original plan had 65 single family homes on smaller lots. This current plan is a 56 unit plan with a range of lot sizes from about 5,400 square feet to 8,500. Home sizes that are consistent with the neighborhood that we're in with homes that are 2,500 to 3,500. It's that same low density designation that that our neighbors are in, and it maintains the original boundaries of the sports park and the school. So we're not encroaching at all into La Puerta anymore um, because what we heard primarily was people wanted us to leave that alone, that there were too many moving pieces and parts, and they wanted a plan that was, again, more consistent with the neighborhood. So we eliminated all the changes to the sports parks we the overall unit count it was about 15%. We increased the lot sizes to be bigger and more consistent with the um, neighboring properties specifically on Forbes so that as you drove down the street they were more consistent that streetscape and that that feeling well new homes will always look new. The lot configuration is very similar to that of our neighbors across the street. Um and then we increased and enhanced some of the architecture based on the feedback we received from the city. Now, one of the questions that people asked me to ask is, why don't you build more of exactly what they have already? And you said, yeah, that would be like absolutely against the law. You can't have another 1970s or 60s home built because there's been so many regulations and things since then, it would never be approved. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head and illegal may be the wrong word, but... Well, against code, let's put it that way, certainly. Yeah, code, water quality. We do have an issue with water supply. And one of the things with large lots, like the ones around us, 14,000 foot lots, is you end up with a lot of landscape. And landscaping today, you got to be careful with what you use. And so we'd end up with these yards, not full of grass, but full of drought tolerant plants. And decomposed granite and what have you. Exactly. It wouldn't be an area or a lot that would be conducive to dealing with some of the issues that we need to deal with as a society. 
continues to try to be more environmentally conscious, um, which is important. But also, I think back to the time when building 15,000 foot lots was the way we did things. And I say we as an industry and as a society, we moved way away from some of the things that we know are bad. You know, in the 70s, we were driving lead-based, lead cars that use lead gas, and we were smoking in airplanes, and we don't do those things anymore. And as an industry, we've evolved very much, society has, to be more environmentally conscious, but we still need homes. And what we've done here is really balance the needs of the community, the environment, and the future residents with a project that does a number of different things, including providing funding for the school district, which is a paramount issue in town and many towns is we've got aging schools and part of what makes Claremont unique and special is it's got some of the best schools, certainly the best schools in the region. And in order for those to remain the best schools, they need to be upgraded. And so this project, once it's approved and our ability to purchase the site is codified, you know, that money is going to go directly back into programs within the district to upgrade those schools. That's outstanding. As a matter of fact, the last interview I posted was with one of the candidates for the school board. And in that interview, I posited that the value of living in Claremont, you can draw a direct line. It's basically proportional to the quality of the Claremont schools. Absolutely. And so anything that boosts the quality of the Claremont schools, even if you don't have kids, helps the community. I can't agree more. And so when you say millions for local schools, there's two sources. First is they get this piece of property that's a burden for them off their books, correct? That's correct. So right there, that's money saved that can be used for something else. Correct. Second, you're buying it. So boom, there's a there's an influx of cash right there, right? Correct. And as a function of getting building permits on the land that we would be purchasing, we would pay additional impact fees directly to the school district, which would further improve the schools in Claremont. So in three ways right there, no arguments. This is good for the schools. I can't find a good reason it wouldn't be, frankly. And, and I'm obviously, you know, have an agenda and see my perspective. But as a community member in my own community, getting funding for our schools is a priority. And this does just that. It takes a piece of property that has been, I wouldn't call it vacant for 40 years, but it certainly hasn't been used in a way that it was intended for 40 years. And the district's been trying to dispose of this property for over 13 or 14 years. We're the third or fourth developer who's made an attempt at purchasing it. We believe we've done a great job of working closely with the neighbors and the community to form a plan that does just that, provides that low density neighborhood that the neighbors and the community have said they want, but it also preserves our ability to purchase the site. And that purchasing you know, leads towards improvements to schools which makes our project even more valuable to us. Well, actually to everyone. And everybody else. Yeah, of course. That's why you've said in our conversations prior to the podcast that the real way to proceed forward is with a win-win that everybody gets what they want in the end. I've heard that certain projects get proposed and then everybody starts picking at them and you end up with something that nobody really wanted. Yeah, that does happen, unfortunately. And our hope is that doesn't happen here, is that we end up with a, a project that is a win-win, doesn't become a must-win for one side, but balances the needs of the community as well as their hopes and their dreams and, and what they want, that it's not just what I want, but it's what the majority of the folks that we've spoken to are hoping to achieve here. These are low density family intended homes where it's not a 400 square foot studio or something like that, where one person could live. This is intended for families that would have kids that would go to the schools. 
It would. And we've included in as part of our proposal six accessory dwelling units that are being built within those homes that would be designated for community members who don't need a home, but need, you know, a smaller unit. So they aren't big ADUs, but they're perfect for single teachers, for students that are going to the local colleges and or for the parents of the people who own the homes to have a place to stay and and live in and be able to maintain a residence within Claremont at an affordable price. And they're actually now giving 20 grand to people who are putting up ADUs. Yeah, I heard that, which is great. I think the city thinking around that is good. The more housing that we can get built in the community that's for the community is great. I've heard some other questions about the previous project, some other concerns rather. Things like fire engine access and egress. Another was drainage. And another uh, had to do with elevations and things like that. Let's talk about the true information and the misinformation and try and dispel the myths and the misinterpretations or fears and hurdles that the local neighbors and the community has. In other words, what's out there that's popularly thought to be true, but isn't? Hopefully we've done a good job to communicate what we're doing and what we're not doing. But to your point, in a process that is very difficult, the way housing projects are approved, it's not an ideal process for community engagement, unfortunately, because of rules that limit the ability for us to have engagement with the local leaders called the Brown Act. A lot of what we have to do is done in the public space. We're doing it right now, but it doesn't provide the best outcome sometimes. And so one of the things that has come up multiple times is that what we're not telling people is that we're ultimately going to buy the entire report to park property from the district and develop housing across the entire site. Not only is that not true, but the city, I believe it was last year, uh, reaffirmed their agreement with the school district that La Puerta will remain La Puerta Park and we will not be changing that in any way. Um, as it relates to the conversations around fire, I know there's some studies that the city's still doing, but this project has been reviewed by LA County Fire. And it's consistent with all their rules, provides the access that they need. And um, there are no issues relative to the fire access that, you know, I know it was brought up at one point and I think it's been addressed fairly well. Well, they said something like one way in, one way out. And that if for whatever reason that's blocked and then they were thinking that having a plan B ingress and egress point would be safer at the margin. Nothing's a problem until it's a problem. Sure. I can see at least the concern. Yeah. And fire is a concern. I mean, fire is not something that we think you should not talk about because you know, the reality is we've got wildfires. We're, we're near a, you know, a higher fire designated zone. The unique thing about homes today versus homes that were built in the 70s is that they are uh, built in a way that you can shelter in place because the homes themselves, I wouldn't say that they don't catch on fire, but they don't burn like old houses. We don't use shake roofs anymore. In many cases, we use venting that's ember protective venting so that embers from fires that occur miles away can't creep into the attic space. They're all sprinkled. So every home has a fire sprinkler system. So then in the event there is a fire, the home will extinguish itself in most cases or burn at a rate that allows for the fire department to get on site and extinguish that blaze, you know, before it becomes a problem. These are all studied at very detailed levels, not only in the sequel process, but also by the fire department. And if they came back and said, hey, we need two points of access, we would gladly provide those um, because what we don't want to do is build homes that are unsafe for our homeowners but create a safety hazard for the community when we're done. And so in many ways, new housing becomes a barrier to new fires. It becomes a fire break in many senses because uh, these homes won't burn like an old house would. Very good. And that's actually then 
things I don't think that people realize, for instance, that they're all sprinkled. Correct. You know, again, we, we built differently then, we build differently now, and I imagine 10 years from now, we'll continue to build differently. The homes we build today are the most energy efficient homes in the nation. They are also the safest homes to live in in the nation. They're built at standards that far exceed almost any other housing development project that I could think of across the board. They're homes that are in every way better for the community, whether it's from an environmental perspective or from a safety perspective, uh, but they still are homes and they're homes where people are able to ultimately move in. You know, I think about the homes that I've lived in over the years, my housing journey, my first house that I was able to purchase. And those are things people need, people want. And this project will ensure that 56 families will have the ability to come home to a place to dream, a place where they you know, have memories and have the same things that I have. You know, as as a individual, I have a place that that I can refer to where, you know, my dreams come true and where I can dream and plan and have a family. And that's really what we want to do here. Very cool. My first house was built in 54. They had no insulation in any of the walls. The heater was the biggest joke of all. It was maybe a foot wide and about four feet tall in the hallway. And it was one gas jet. Like if you turned your stove on at the highest level and it kept everybody warm who would like to live in the hallway. But it was the least energy efficient thing you can think of. The way we build is they exceed the requirements for energy efficiency uh, by 15 or 20 percent. You know, I have a home very much like you discussed, Russ, where I don't have insulation in some of the exterior walls or the roof. As we, you know, work on our house and remodel it, when we get the opportunity, we add those energy efficiencies where we can, you know, whether it's dual pane e-glass or, you know, adding insulation to walls that don't have insulation. But the homes that we're building, like I said, they exceed energy standards. They all come pre-wired for solar, for EV charging. We actually include the solar panels as part of the development project. And in this case, our home buyers are going to have the option to go all electric. When you look at sustainability, one thing that the state's really pushing on is getting away from fossil fuels. Well, we don't disagree that fossil fuels have issues. We're letting our home buyers who want to go all electric, they have that option. So no more gas stoves, no more gas water heaters. It's not a requirement to do that, but we think giving our buyers the ability to step into a more sustainable way of living where you have battery backup systems, you have an array of solar voltaic panels to charge those batteries up during the day and use them at night, reduce the reliance on our grid as well as the use of fossil fuels. All of that is in many ways an improvement from the way we used to develop in the past. Now that you've brought it up, everything you just said about the battery backup or the daytime battery storage that would accumulate while the sun's out and you're at work, and then you come home at night and charge up off the battery to make your car ready for the next morning. I asked the folks who did a presentation for Village South, where are the solar panels? They don't have them in any of their pictures. And when I asked them, I said, where's the batteries? Are your units going to be wired for EVs and this and that? They really did not like those questions. They kind of backed up. They said, well, that's really expensive. And uh, I said, not if you do it while you're building the house. I mean, isn't that the case? It's the time to do it is when you're building the house. So when your garages are going to have not necessarily an EV charger in it, but be ready to have one where all the high capacity wires are already in the wall. Yes, we are pre-wiring and it would be a function of picking the charger. So depending on the type of car you have, on which EV you have, if you have a Tesla, you know, they have proprietary systems and you would get to choose and ultimately, you know, install the one that works best for your situation. 
or you wouldn't have to uh, wire up the home. It's going to be pre-wired. Even the future location for batteries will be pre-wired. The panels will be set up. And so it's a function of picking the battery storage system that you like and the charger system that works for your vehicles and installing just those. But everything else and all the infrastructure is in place when we build the home. And it, it certainly is easier to do it then than to do it down the road where you have to upgrade your electrical system. That won't have to be done with these homes. And have ugly conduit on the outside of the house and things like that. It's integrated and it's done. Now, just as a quick question, do you have to pick out all that before you buy the house or is the house built with those already in it and then you just choose the external portions? So the external portions like the solar panels and everything are already uh, pre-designed where there's some opportunities for the home buyers to make changes. Um, if they need more power, let's say they've got multiple vehicles, there is an opportunity for us to upgrade or change the base items that would be included. But, um, you know, out of the gate, it's already installed on the home, a, a base system, again, with the systems pre-wired. So they literally put in a breaker and they connect their charger to um, the pre-wired system and they plug their car in and they're ready to go. The reason I'm asking all this is where I work, it seems like there's a new Tesla in the parking lot almost every month. People are just getting to the idea like, yeah, they're expensive cars, but look how much you save. One of the things that is at issue not only with your project, but everything in Claremont, is what defines affordable. And to me, there's two levels of affordable. What gets you in the house? And the second is what keeps you in the house. If the elimination or the reduction of, for instance, having to buy gasoline, is being the homeowner going to be less post-purchase than people expect of a currently built house? Could you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have exact statistics, but I can tell you that the homes that are being built today, for instance, wouldn't need their air conditioner as much because of the way that homes are built. You know, even the windows, um, the way and the angle of the sun will in the winter will help heat the house. And in the summer, when the sun is up high, it'll actually help keep the house cool. And so all of that results in less of an energy drain on the system. And then when you have energy that's being generated literally from the rooftop, and it provides for, in many cases, I wouldn't call it free because nothing's free, but it's, it's a low cost operation. And that ultimately ends up reducing energy bills, the lack of needing to fill up your car with fuel every couple of days, you know, certainly saves you money. And if in the event you have a battery system, um, in many cases, you almost never need the grid. And all of that results in a lower cost of housing um, on a monthly basis. Yeah, the cost of home ownership ongoing. Yeah. This is what I wanted you to speak to is that affordable housing isn't just at the purchase price. It's the live there price. Correct. And when you build it into the house as you build it, I think you tell me the payback on doing those things is way faster. It's way faster and it's also can be incorporated into the financing of the house. On my house, when we looked at adding solar and, and doing a number of things, it was, you know, roughly $20,000 to do it. You know, that would go basically either finance that or come out of pocket on that. In the case here where we're building all of this into the house, yeah, it has a cost attached to it, but it's a lot lower when we're doing it all at the same time, like you mentioned before which ultimately leads to lower, you know, costs of living, whether it's, you know, again, not having to, to buy gasoline and that continues to be a challenge for a lot of people. What this does is it helps, you know, minimize your cost of living in a state that's expensive. And while these homes would definitely not fit the, the world of affordable in its own definition, more homes, you know, is what we need. And these homes will be priced consistent with the community that it's in. Claremont homes are expensive. 
you know, what drives the outcome of most projects is the surrounding cost of real estate is expensive. And so these homes aren't going to be cheap, but they certainly will add to the inventory of new homes in the community. And that's something that, you know, has a benefit to everybody because more homes mean more families can afford to live in the city. So then is there anything you'd like to say about these that would set them apart from the expectations people have of homes that maybe have been put up recently or the fears they have of what these are going to turn out like? In other words, and I'm not asking you to sell people on the idea, but just assure people in the area that these are not going to be cheap cracker boxes or something like that. What does it do to help those who really can't afford to buy, but nonetheless still need housing in the area. Yeah. Obviously, first recognize that, you know, housing and the challenges of housing in the state are bigger than us and we can't fix the challenges ourselves. We, we do this in collaboration with everybody, but more homes are better. And there's a lot of research that's been done around housing affordability and housing attainability. Our plan here is to keep these as affordable as we can. But the reality is that, again, we're in a community that has million dollar homes, specifically in our neighborhood, they're over a million dollars. And our homes, we're hoping to keep them close to a million or under a million. We generally set pricing when when we go to market. And so if the housing remains extremely high in the community, it makes it harder for us to sell homes that are cheap. Um, And it's not something we're going to do. What I would encourage everybody to do is take a look at our specific plan, which outlines the architectural design and, you know, the devil's obviously in the details. These homes are not only not cheap, but they're thoughtfully designed. They take some of the really great parts of the village. If you go down the village, drive around, there's some really wonderful pieces of architecture, really wonderful ways of designing homes. Um, in some cases, we have driveways that are, you know, 40 feet long. And so a family that has three cars, they can all park in the driveway as well as park in the two-car garage. But they're extremely well-designed and they're consistent with some of the great architecture that we see throughout the village. I think we have at least three different architectural designs as well as within those designs, multiple palette material, color palettes. So it's not just one design that's stamped out, but it's very different. We have five floor plans that we're proposing. Like I said, one of those includes an ADU. And so if you were a homeowner that bought that, you would then have the ability to rent that unit out to a student, to a teacher, to a firefighter, to somebody that wants to remain in the community at a relatively low cost for rent. Or in in the case where you have a larger family and you have a parent that may need a place to stay, I think we used to call them granny flats. You would have that option too as a homeowner here that, that had an ADU. And we're building that into the unit day one. So it's not something they would have to come back and do. So even to make the house more quote unquote affordable, they have an income stream they can bank on. I mean, ADUs are a great complement to a community. And when they're well-designed to fit into that community, they're even better. And that's what our project does. Cool. Does this seem then where you're at to play well with the community or is there other pushbacks you'd like to address? You know what, you talked at the beginning about the uncertainty here, and that's really a fundamental component here that we're really trying to avoid is is get into a situation where nobody knows what's going to happen. And so what we hope is that, you know, the outreach that we've done, the plan that we propose continues to receive support from the broad community, which we know that it does, but ensures that the community and the project really protects the local priorities, provides these benefits that are important benefits like Funding for the schools provides more housing stock for the community, includes some affordability with our ADUs, but ultimately, again, really ensures that the development of a single family neighborhood happens here. You know, I think the Courier article came out today about 
our supplemental application and the potential ability here, if, if um, this project doesn't move forward, for a project of up to 300 units. The city was quoted in saying that they're targeted about 135 units. While we think more housing is good, we also believe in the process. And, you know, we're three years into seeking input and feedback. And this plan that we propose is really essentially what the community response was. They want to see something get done, but they want to see low density housing. And that's exactly what our 56 unit plan does. It's not 300 units. It's not 135. It's 56. And while some may say, well, that's just not enough. um, What we need is more housing. And that's housing that the community wants to see built. We're looking forward to our local leaders um, taking this task on. It's a tough one. I don't envy anybody in a situation where they've got to make a decision where not everybody's happy. But I think the result of all of our outreach and efforts that, you know, we've been engaging for almost three years has resulted in one of the best outcomes that I've seen where the community has been listened to. And it says right on your website, LaporteClaremont.com, yes. the collaborative plan. And there's a list here that shows exactly what has been, I would say, agreed to, that you've eliminated the parks plans, you've reduced the home count by 15%, you've made the lots bigger, what, 8,500 square feet? Up to, yeah, up to 85. Mainly the lots along Forbes have gotten a lot bigger as a direct response to those homeowners, as well as feedback we got directly from the city. And you've reduced the unit count and increased the lot size averages by a fifth. So that's good, right? That's in, in line with what the people want. Yes. One of the things it says here in the Claremont Courier article is that they asked a group of residents who opposed the development for on the record comment and all declined. That was my experience as well, is that everybody has lots to say until it comes time to say something. And yet I think from what you've told me that you actually go out and you know, let's talk, you know, let's not be shy here. Absolutely. And I'd like to have this opportunity, if you don't mind, to invite folks on the other side of the deal to come on Claremont Speaks and speak up as well. I think it'd be great. I mean, we've spoken to many of the people that have been opposed, some that may still be opposed. Many of the people that opposed our last project, we believe support this project uh, because what we did is we addressed their main concerns like encroachment on the parks and changes to things that affected the neighborhood in a way that they thought were were negative, we've changed those. And so we're always going to have people that think we have too many homes, but we have a unique case here in Claremont where we have people that think there should be a lot more homes. And while I'd love to come and build into oblivion, I believe as a community member, as a planner, as a, you know, someone who's engaged in the neighborhood, that we have to listen to all the stakeholders. And that's what the 56 unit plan does. It's a collaborative process that has evolved over the last three years. And we're on our fourth revision as we speak. That was a direct response to the community engagement. And to many of those who were opposed, I hope and believe that there are less people opposed today than there were the day we started this outreach effort. Now, one of the things you told me is that in other communities, Covina and Chino Hills, or is it West Covina and Chino Hills? Yeah, it's Covina. So my hometown, Covina, where I was born and going back, you know, one of the things that that I have heard is that, you know, we're going to come in here, build a bunch of homes and be gone. That was where I was going with this. Yeah. And that's really not our style. One of the things that really was appealing to me when I was looking to make a change and move from the company that I had been working for was I believe strongly in this idea that the best projects are ones that are done in a collaborative process and one, you know, where you become part of the community because the end of the result here is We're going to be selling these homes to families who are going to be residents of the city. And we want to continue to do that. And so Covina, Chino Hills, those are two great examples 
of we're community building and consensus where we've not only built one project, but we're about to start a third in Chino Hills. We believe we're a member of that community. And we've got two projects currently under construction in Covina. And we're looking at building third project there. Staying in a community is much easier than coming into a community. And my company and the founders who you know are also local residents in California believe in this idea that once we get into a community, we want to stay there. We want to build more projects. And so while this is the first in Claremont, hopefully it's not our last one. And the next project we come forward with, people recognize our name. They recognize me. They understand our intent and our goals. And they don't see us as somebody's just going to come in and pump in a bunch of homes that people don't want and then leave. One of the developments here where there used to be a strawberry field, I think you know who I mean off a baseline here. Mm-hmm. The complaint I've heard is it seems to have been bought up by outside investors and people are just buying them just to flip them. We have rules in place in, in our sales process where we don't allow investments. We, you know, you have to buy the home to live in the home. That's one of the fundamental components of, you know, what we do. Now there are limitations on how we vet that out and how we ensure that that occurs. But if you come to my sales office and you're trying to buy an investment property, um, you're going to be sent somewhere else because these aren't investments. These are homes that are intended to house families that want to live in this community and stay in this community and own property in the community. It doesn't prevent them from ultimately selling at some point. It is their house after all. It is their house, but they're not the investment that anybody would have to make in in a project like this would deter an investor and our rules and regulations on who and what we, how we sell um, would further encourage that the people that buy here live here. I just wanted to give you a chance to differentiate your project from that. And when you say that this is not something where somebody can come in with what, $5 million buy five homes. And then just sit on them empty until they appreciate. That's not even a possibility. Is that correct? That's correct. Our policies would not allow for that to occur. And I think that adds to the comfort level of the neighborhood. Because if they're going to sit with a bunch of ghost homes, what's the point? Yeah, an empty home doesn't do anybody any good. In fact, it actually does uh, the very opposite of that. And we strongly encourage, you know, home ownership. It's the only thing that we do. We don't do apartments. We only do for sale housing, whether it's big lot single family homes or smaller lot single family homes are in. Some cases, you know, we build high rises in downtown LA as well as San Francisco and the Bay Area. That's not what this is. This is single family, detached, low density, single family homes for families who want to live and reside in the community. One of the biggest challenges that we continue to hear is that there are families in the city of Claremont whose kids are now looking to form their own family and they have nowhere to go. And so they have to leave Claremont. Sometimes they have to leave the state in order to do that. And and what we really need to do is build more homes for the community so that as those family formations occur, that they can stay in their home. I think about my first home and and, um, I was able to buy a home in the city that my family lived in and still lives in and live close to my mom who's, you know, getting older. Um, But I'm close enough that if my mom needs help, I can get to her. And I can help her, but I'm far enough away that that my home is for my family. There isn't enough of that occurring right now. And I think being able to bring more homes for more families is a really critical thing and something that I'm super proud of to be a part of and believe that this project does just that. It's 56 homes. That's 56 families that are critical to trying to address a real problem in our state, and that is housing affordability and housing attainability. Perfect. Is there any other, let's say, misinformation or disinformation that you'd like to address? You know, nothing pops into my head. I think there's been some discussions about our intentions, and hopefully we've talked a bit about that today and what our goals are and who we are as a company. 
know, we're a family run business. You know, you talked about foreign investment. We do have foreign investors. It's not an unusual situation in a business like ours. You know, a project like this is going to take roughly $70 million of investment and dollars spent. And that money, you know, comes from the capital market. In some cases, those capital markets are foreign investors. It doesn't change who's actually doing the work. Who's actually doing the work is my team, local residents. One of our engineers is actually a resident of Claremont. I, like I said, I'm a resident of Southern California. I was born locally in Covina. And regardless of where the money comes from, the ownership and the management of our company is still a family. I sit right next to, or I share a wall with one of our founding principals. His son is also a member of our team and the one who negotiated the purchase with the district. And I don't expect that to change. And I think that's what makes our company a little different and special is that we're not a a publicly held company. We're private. And being private gives us opportunities to do things that may otherwise not be doable if we were, you know, a production public home builder. So it makes us, you know, more unique in many ways, gives us the ability to do a project like this, that with a three-year process of outreach and modifications and changes to ultimately end up with a collaborative plan, as opposed to just some cookie cutter development project that looks like everything else. This is going to be a unique, special project. And by being a private company, then you aren't slaves to the next quarter's stock price. We aren't. Which can do more damage than some people realize. Yeah. The fundamentals of the reality of home building in the state are in many ways is the capital markets are heavily involved. And the more involved they are, the harder it gets to be special and unique. And while we don't get to avoid the capital markets, we have a lot more control of our destiny. And we're in a position in this particular project and all the ones we work on to take the time and the effort that is needed in order to come to the final end of a process that results in a project that had community input and community engagement. And it isn't just what we want, but it's what the majority of the community has, you know, made clear they want. And pleased with. When it's all said and done, you want everybody to kind of look at it and go like, okay, this is better. Indeed. I mean, we, we want to be invited back to do this again. That was my point about bringing up Covina and Chino Hills is that you don't get to do the second project if they hate you after the first one. Correct. And we have a great track record of being invited back, being asked to come and build more projects. And our hope is that happens here when we're done with this project, that people are coming to us saying, hey, we've got another site we think you should look at. It happens in almost every community we build in. And I look forward to being back on here again at some point, talking about the next project that we're working on. We haven't found that one yet, but I believe that at the end of the day that we will be invited back again and again to continue to build more housing, appropriate housing um, in areas that afford us that opportunity. Okay, so let's wrap it up with this. You've said that SB 330, the builder's remedy, Yep, you're saying that's like plan Z. You really don't want to have to do that. We really don't. I refer to it as a bookmark. You know, right now that is basically just a option that's on the table. It's not an option that we prefer, but it's one that guarantees that whatever gets built still protects the local priority and provides the community with the most benefits. It ensures and locks in that the project is still single family or has a single family character and significantly consistent with the surrounding community. Um, And it doesn't turn this site into, I'm not using this in a pejorative way, but there's high density housing. I mean, think of LA and we don't think, you know, having a project that would be more like something you'd see in LA is appropriate for this site. And then lastly, what it ensures is that we're able to still purchase the property from the school district, uh, provide them that critical funding that they need. And ensures that this uncertainty around this project isn't as uncertain, but it is in our preference. Our preference is the 56-unit collaborative plan 
that is a result of, you know, up to three years of community engagement and one that we believe is the most appropriate for this site. What would be the few key elements that it would take to make that a reality? So yeah, the next steps would be for the city to release the environmental impact report, which, you know, hopefully they do in the next month or so. And that would then continue the dialogue with the community. They'd have an opportunity to weigh in on that environmental impact report, which we haven't seen it, but we hope and believe that our project is going to come out as the superior project for the environment and that our local leaders take a look at it. They look at the track record, the history of the outreach efforts and the feedback and realize that that's the plan that the community has asked for. Um, and that they ultimately vote in favor of the 56 unit project, which would then not have us have to even entertain the supplemental application that um, at this point is really just a backup plan and not one that we really want to have to even consider doing. Okay. So going forward and that happens, they pull the trigger. When would you then see two things, breaking ground and move in? So we hope to have the final hearings on this project before the end of the year. Following that and assuming they say yes, then have a substantial amount of uh, work that has to be done. It takes roughly nine months before we could break ground. So it wouldn't be until sometime late next year. And that is on the 56 unit plan. And so it'd be sometime next year before we would ever break ground on the project. So it'd be towards the end of 2024 before people were moving in. At least, if not late in 2025, before they could actually move in. Um, Because we have, you know, significant land development that has to occur building the streets, bringing the infrastructure into the project. But then the homes will be built rather quickly. These homes will be built in 90 to 120 days from when we begin construction. They will be built in phases. So, you know, we don't build them all at one time. We do all of the land development and prepare the site. Um, and then we build in phases as we sell off the units to the future home buyers. So minimizing the construction impact to the neighborhood. Yeah, as much as possible. The way we build these is we do all of the infrastructure, the streets, so that we don't have a bunch of road closures throughout the entirety of the project. And then we phase the on-lot development over a period of time. I would estimate a project like this would be, you know, built and sold within 18 months of when we start, given the need and the, the low density. I mean, it's not a lot of units, 56 units. We can build those relatively quickly. And then we also use some new construction methods where we build panelized systems. I think I talked a little bit about that in our previous podcast. Um, But if anybody wants more of those details, our development pattern and our process is one of the least intrusive processes that it could be versus if we were having to build, you know, a 300 unit apartment project that can take, you know, upwards of three years and be very disruptive. So then from the time we've spent here on the podcast, what would you like to have people remember most? We obviously want as much support as we can for the collaborative plan. This plan is one that results in a project that has listened and engaged in the community, protects their priorities, provides a significant amount of community benefits. One that really speaks to our commitment to being a good neighbor and a partner with the city and its residents for the long haul. And I would want everybody to, A, have an open mind, but if you have a question, you know, I'm available, I wouldn't say 24-7, but certainly you know, during the daytime, seven days a week on my cell phone, which they could reach me at on, um, and I'm gonna give you the number now, so get out a pen, 949-510-2070. And I'd encourage them to get onto our website, laportdeclaremont.com, sign up for our newsletter so they can be kept in the loop as we move forward. Um, Any meetings that occur, you know, any um, community engagement that we do will be included in those updates that we send out. And we'd encourage as many people that um, have questions or want answers to reach out to us and reach out to me.
you answered my next question, which was a call to action. So in other words, do those things to stay informed and have your concerns addressed. Absolutely. And I always have to say, I like somebody who gives out their own phone number and answers their own phone. That to me is a big differentiator in my mind. It's not some corporate line where it just goes to a message that never gets returned. Yeah, I think that'd be very frustrating for people to just get a voicemail and never hear back or just get a long drawn out process to get engaged with. I want to talk to the community. I've always maintained that's the most important part of this process is the engagement with our community and encourage people to reach out to me, whether you like the project or not. If you, you know, more importantly, if you have some concerns or some questions, we really want to hear from you. All right. So Eric, you have been, once again, a spectacular guest, and I can't thank you enough for coming on. Any last thoughts or any final points you want to make? I just appreciate the opportunity and the time, Russ, to have this conversation. I always enjoyed talking to you and really appreciate what you bring to the community, which is a forum that doesn't exist anywhere else that I'm aware of. And I appreciate you giving us an opportunity to come back on here as a two-time offender. and A repeat offender. Yeah, a repeat offender. And, but in a good way. In a good way. And um, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you today and, and to speak to the community and share with them what we're trying to get accomplished here. So thank you. You are more than welcome. And I hope that this is going to do not only the project, Truemark, but the community in at large some good because it seems like there was a lot of misinformation and disinformation and rumors and what have you that I hope we've put these some of those to bed with this and that contacting you can really quell the ones in the future. Me too. And really, again, thank you so much for having us today. You are welcome. We'll have you on again next year or whenever the thing, you know, kicks off. How does that sound? Sounds great. It'd come back anytime. Please take Eric up on his invitations. Please take Claremont Speaks up on the invitation to contact me at ClaremontSpeaks at gmail.com. Thank you, Claremont, for listening. And I hope you'll be here next time when Claremont Speaks.